0: We're going to be continuing, uh, as was just said, in our, our Advent series this morning. Uh, we're uh, leading up to Christmas, so we're on week two of Advent. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. But before I read the passage and get into that, I did want to uh, go ahead and, and publicly make this announcement. Uh, some of many of you have probably already heard by now, uh, but it is official that uh, Pillar Church, of Washington, D.C., is going to be moving our new Sunday morning meeting location to Jefferson Academy. So. So we're, yeah, we're excited about that. Uh, So January the 5th, 2020, we're going to begin meeting right across the street at Jefferson Academy. Uh, If you don't know where that is, when when you walk out to Main Avenue and you see this giant building to school, that's where we're going to be. Uh, so we've been uh, praying for a long time that God would open up the door for us to be able to uh, meet there. And after a lot of prayer, and a lot of uh, conversation, we we just really strongly felt that that's where God was leading us to go. And so we're excited about that, excited that the door's been opened. So uh, we're going to keep reminding you week after week, make sure you tell people, if you know people that, that attend Pillar DC that aren't here uh, today, just begin to spread the word uh, because uh, if you come here on January the 5th, we won't be here, and so you'll be lonely. And so um, we'll be at Jefferson uh, on January 5th, 2020. So we're excited about that. Um, so this morning, uh, like I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to go ahead and, and read the passage, and then we're going to pray, and then we will jump into the message. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. God, I thank you for. um, I just thank you for. What we're celebrating during this Christmas season, during this Advent season, where we we celebrate the incredible reality that uh, God uh, didn't leave us uh, to to suffer the consequences for our sin, but instead you came to earth, you humbled yourself, you left your throne in heaven, and you uh, were born as a human being, as a baby in a manger, and you... You became flesh, as John chapter 1 says, so that you could die on the cross in our place for our sins. Um, just a, a staggering reality, God. It's, a, it's the demonstration of a love that we could never fully comprehend. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes just to, to see and to understand just how glorious you are and how good your love is this morning. Um, just how amazing uh, this reality is, Um, Lord, that we um, would be able to to gather together this morning and worship Emmanuel, God, with us. You're not a distant God who um, doesn't come near us. You're not unapproachable. God, you've made a way for us to come into your presence and to to approach you. You've taken away our guilt and our shame um, by your blood on the cross. God, I just pray that we would respond appropriately this morning with with joy, and um, God, by surrendering, surrendering ourselves to you, by surrendering our lives to you. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach um, this morning. God, um, I just, even right now, I just sense that there is spiritual warfare going on in a lot of our lives. Um, God, I know that The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, Satan hates you. He hates us. He wants to to destroy every person here. He wants, as the seed of the gospel is sown, he wants it to be snatched up before it has a chance to take root into the hearts of people. God, I just pray that in the name of Jesus, that you would come and and be in our midst. That you would protect us. uh, That you, uh, God, would remove distractions. Lord, that we would uh, listen to your word this morning and that your word would change us and transform us, God, that we would, that eyes would be open to see the true hope um, that we have uh, at Christmas time. We love you and we thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, we're in the midst of Advent, as I said, and um, we're celebrating the coming of Jesus into the world. And we're going to look at an aspect of the Christmas story this morning that sometimes is overlooked and is oftentimes misunderstood. Um, there's much more here in this passage that we just read than meets the eye, though. This text, this passage is packed with glory. There's there's so much incredible truth in here, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited to kind of unpack for you guys uh, a lot of what's here in this passage. The... Uh, Uh, The the main message, just kind of the one-sentence summary uh, of the message of this passage this morning is that Jesus is the king of the world to whom all the nations of the earth will come and worship. Jesus is the king of the world to whom all the nations of the earth will come and worship. That's the truth claim that this passage makes. And so... Because that's, that this passage is making that, that truth claim, we all need to consider how we're going to respond to that reality. How are you going to respond to the reality that Jesus is the king of the world to whom all of the nations of the earth will come and worship? Now, I'll tell you, my desire for you, the the way that I uh, desire that each person here this morning would respond is that uh, you would rejoice exceedingly and that you would give extravagantly in response to this revelation of King Jesus. So that's my desire for you is that you would rejoice exceedingly and give extravagantly in response to Jesus. Uh, what we're going to do, the way we're going to walk through this passage is, since it's a story, we're going to go through it kind of scene by scene. Uh, so uh, there are uh, kind of five different, you know, uh, scenes here in this text, and they're kind of, I- I've broken them down like this on your outline, at the expedition, the opposition, the revelation, the fabrication, And the exaltation. So those are kind of the five main uh, parts of this passage, and we're just going to look at each one of those one at a time. So let's go ahead and just start uh, in verses 1 and 2, and let's look at the expedition. So uh, the wise men here, it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there are a ton of myths about these wise men and about this part of uh, the Christmas story. Uh, Likely, you you know maybe when you were a kid growing up, you had a nativity scene, right? And you had the shepherds with the animals, and you had the wise men there and everything. And uh, it makes for a really cool, you know, like decorative setup. But that's not actually how it was because the wise men uh, weren't there the night that Jesus was born. Uh, In actuality, they probably arrived several weeks after Jesus was born. Um, Some people would say two years, but I don't think it was that long. It was probably several weeks. After he was born, because they came uh, from the east, uh, we don't know exactly where they came from. But a lot of scholars think they probably came from Babylon, which modern day would be Iraq. And it would have taken them several weeks, maybe even a couple of months, to arrive in Bethlehem uh, to travel that far. Once they saw the star in the sky, one of the other myths is that they were these were three kings, uh, but. Uh, that's kind of just something that's developed over tradition because the Bible never tells us that they're kings, and the Bible never tells us that there were three of them. There were three different gifts presented, but for all we know, there could have been 30 of them or 40 of them, uh, and they weren't kings. It says... our, our translation here says they were wise men uh, they were the the Greek word is actually magi which so they were essentially uh, magicians or astrologers, so uh, they practiced divination uh, they would have studied the movement of the stars and the messaging in the movement of the stars so basically these were uh, you know pagan uh, you know magicians that practiced divination somewhere from the east and they were also. Uh, royal officials. Now, clearly, they had significant wealth and resources because they brought these very lavish gifts to Jesus. And they would have, it wouldn't have just been, like I think a lot of times we get in our minds that these were just three random guys kind of traveling alone through the desert. But these would have been like three uh, royal officials who would have been traveling with a contingent. So they would have had an entourage with them, basically. So they would have had caravans with camels, and they would have had like their bodyguards around them or whatever, you know, like all kinds, servants, all kinds of people traveling with them. And they, they were clearly a known commodity and a big deal because they actually you know, held court with King Herod. So King Herod thought they were important enough to actually allow them to come and talk to him. So these just weren't anybody. That's the point, right? These, were, these, these guys were big deals uh, where they came from. Okay, And they travel all the way from the east to come and to see this newborn king of the Jews or the king of Israel. They come to pay tribute to him. And God, the text says, supernaturally ordained a star to guide them so that they could come and worship. Now, this is really amazing on a number of levels. Um, The star leading the magi actually clues us in that this isn't just any king that they're coming to pay tribute to. This is the king. Because this, this passage is actually pointing us back ...to another passage in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22 uh, through 24. It's a story that maybe is uh, unfamiliar to some of you. In Numbers chapter 22 to 24... Uh, there are two characters named Balak and Balaam. So what was happening is that uh, the nation of Israel has been delivered out of Egypt. They are wandering around in the wilderness and God has promised to lead them into the promised land. They're growing in numbers. They've defeated uh, a lot of the Canaanites who had tried to come and attack them. And there there was a nation called the Moabites who were getting a little bit nervous about Israel. And the king of Moab whose name was Balak, became so concerned that he decided he needed to call upon a magician to come and curse Israel for him. So he called on a named Bala, a guy named Balaam, who was a magician from the east. And he called Balaam to come and to curse Israel with divination. But God met Balaam when Balaam was on his way and commanded him to bless rather than to curse Israel. And so three times... Balak asks Balaam to curse Israel, but three times instead of cursing Israel, he blesses Israel, which makes Balak, the king of Moab, furious. Um, but he can't do anything about it because Balaam blesses the nation of Israel. And then in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the third and final blessing, listen to what Balaam says. Uh, he actually gives a prophecy. He says, I see him now, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So let me try to kind of summarize everything that we're saying here, uh, because this is really amazing, and I want you to kind of see uh, what we're looking at. So three times the enemy of God's people tried to curse them, but instead... They were blessed three times. So look at the connection here. In both instances, in the, with the wise men, with the magi visiting Jesus, and uh, with uh, Balaam, the magician from the east, coming uh, to, uh, at the request of Balak to curse Israel, both times a king wants to curse and destroy the true people of God. So Herod wants to destroy the Messiah, the Christ, and Balak wants to, Balaam to curse Israel. Both times, a king asks magicians from the east to help him. And instead, three times, the magicians bless the true people of God. So Balaam blesses Israel three times, and then the wise men give three gifts to King Jesus. And then Balaam prophesies that a star will come out of Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. And it is a star over Israel that draws the wise men. And Balaam prophesies that a scepter will rise out of Israel and crush the enemies of God's people. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to do. Jesus comes to crush the enemy of God's people, which is Satan and sin and death. So the, the point of all of this in the first two verses of Matthew chapter two is clear: Jesus is the king who will rescue God's people. And there's two important lessons that we need to draw from this. The first is that all Scripture points to Jesus. All Scripture points to Jesus. Things like this, whenever we... It just amazes me when I look at the full scope of Scripture and you begin to see that Scripture is not a bunch of detached books that were you know, written by people that we don't know and that is all disconnected. This is one story. This is one story uh, about how God... Is rescuing people and, and reconciling people to himself because of the sin that separated us from him. It's about the promise that God made to do that. And that promise stretches all the way back to the beginning. There's not one word in the Bible that's purposeless, it all points to Jesus. So let me just encourage you don't ignore the Old Testament. When it comes to your Bible reading, because there are glorious things in the Old Testament and it all points to Jesus and, and investigate the Bible. Spend time studying and thinking as you read the Bible. And when you're if you want to you know, make a good cup of tea, you don't just take the tea bag and dip it for two seconds into hot water and take it out. Right. Or you're just going to have like slightly tinged water right? What do you do? You leave the teabag. You let it steep, right? And that's, what, and, and that's what we need to do in God's Word. We need to let the Word steep a little bit. And so, you know, it's good to do daily devotions. It's good to have, you know, uh, you know a five-minute devotional. But let me encourage you to spend time in God's Word. Open up the Bible. Read it. Study it. Ask questions of it. Be curious. And uh, don't, you know, if you don't, uh, if you just gloss over the Word of God, you're going to miss some of the glorious realities that are in there. And don't feel like you have to do it alone either. Uh, this is why we emphasize discipleship. This is why we encourage you to get into a discipleship relationship. Ask your disciple maker you know, to help you uh, to study the Bible, to help you if you uh, aren't sure you know, what something means in a specific passage or something like that. Your disciple maker can sit down with you and help you figure out uh, how to do that. Uh, the second lesson... That I want us to draw here from this first point is that all nations will come to Jesus. So all scripture points to Jesus and all nations will come to Jesus. So from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's been making it clear that the king of Israel is grafting outsiders into the family of God from every single nation. And that's exactly what he's pointing us to here with these three magi coming from the east. These three Gentiles, these three non-Israelites who get invited to the first birthday party of the king of kings, of the Messiah. They, uh, they come, and in the book of Luke, it's shepherds. So it's not the religious leaders, it's not the people who think that they're righteous, who don't think that they need a savior. God is inviting outsiders into the people of God. You also... I mean, you see that in Matthew chapter one, you know, genealogies, a lot of times we just kind of skip over those in our Bible reading, right? We don't really pay attention because we're like, ah, it's just a bunch of names. But if you actually take some time to to sit through uh, and, and actually look at those names in Matthew chapter one, it's pretty striking the names of the people that you'll find in there. You're going to find, uh, you're going to find Gentiles, you're going to find some pretty terrible people. You're going to find uh, sinners. Uh, You're going to find women, which would have been a big deal back then because they didn't even list women in genealogies. Why is Matthew doing that? He's showing that God is inviting outsiders into the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is for everyone. He's drawing people from all nations to himself. Why? So that he'll be glorified among all of the nations. And that's why we need to go and tell All of the nations. That's why we're going to gather an offering for missions later today, so that the nations will know this good news that God has come into the world. So while the Magi came to worship the king to whom all the nations are coming, not everyone was as excited as the Magi were about this new king of Israel. We see that pretty clearly in verse 3 to 4, where we see the opposition. Look, look at verses 3 and 4. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod, unlike the three magi, saw Jesus as a threat, which is kind of funny if you think about it. There's this king, literally like a king, this big bad king, and he's terrified of a baby in a manger. Now, we actually know some things from extra biblical sources, uh, from uh, historical sources about Herod. Uh, Some of what we know about him is that he was infamously paranoid, and he was obsessed with holding on to his position as king. He was so obsessed that uh, he had his own wife murdered. He had two of his own sons murdered, along with many other people, uh, because he was paranoid that somebody was going to come and take his position of authority. So, I mean, Herod was basically crazy. Um, and you know the reality is is that he wanted to be on the throne. He didn't want to give it up. He liked being king, so an announcement that should have been good news of great joy says troubled Herod. Now it's tempting for the casual reader to look at this story and think that, you know, well, that's just Herod, he's crazy, that has nothing to do with me. And again, that's true. Herod is crazy. But we need to take a sober look at Herod and recognize that his reaction is much more common in us than we think. There's two primary responses to Jesus when, when Jesus is revealed. The first response is that some are going to rejoice at Jesus' coming, and others are going to resist. Jesus is coming. Some will rejoice at the announcement that there's a new king on the scene and some are going to resist his reign. And the Magi were elated to come and meet this king. Even though they were dignitaries, like they weren't slouches, these guys were important officials. Their response when they encountered baby Jesus was to prostrate themselves on the ground and worship. It says they fall on the ground before him. Can you just imagine that scene, like these important officials with, you know, probably these expensive clothes on and and they've got their servants all around them and they come into this random nondescript house in a random nondescript town of Bethlehem with dirt floors and they fall on their face before a baby. That's pretty amazing if you think about it, isn't it? So that's how they respond, but Herod resisted Jesus' reign and the chief priests and the scribes seem oblivious to the fact that Jesus is, is even here, even though they they knew where he was supposed to be born, they were supposedly waiting for the Messiah. Jesus was welcomed and worshipped by pagan magicians, but rejected by his own people. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's a sobering reminder for us that it's possible for the most religious, church-going Folks among us to resist the reign of Jesus. I mean, those are the people who were resisting his reign here in Matthew chapter two. They not only did they resist Jesus' reign, not only did they ignore the coming of the Messiah, they took on Herod's murderous intent and they ultimately had Jesus crucified. It turns out Herod is not the only one paranoid about his reign being challenged. You know, many people today resist the Jesus of the Bible and instead set up for themselves caricatures of Jesus that won't challenge them, that won't challenge their own rule and reign over their own lives. There's different kinds of Jesuses that aren't the real Jesus. There's what I would call a pick me up Jesus. He's the <laughs> I, l- I love it, Doug. <laughs> He's there for us. The pick me up Jesus is there for us when we need to talk to him. But he doesn't tell us what to do, or he doesn't dictate how we should live our lives. He's just kind of, he's kind of an inspirational quote. And then there's the affirming Jesus. He accepts us for who we are. This is a deceptive twisting of grace, though. It's true that Jesus meets us where we're at and receives sinners to himself. That is gloriously true. But he does not leave us the same. Jesus does not affirm you in your sin and applaud you in your sin. He will receive you right where you are, and you don't have to do a thing to come to him this morning except call upon him for salvation. Right as you are. There's, you don't need to get your act together. You don't need to do anything to earn God's favor. That's He came to you while you were still a sinner. But I promise you, he is not going to leave you the same. He's going to change you from the inside out. So this notion of an affirming Jesus that lets you live in sin, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Therefore, he is not the true king and he cannot save you. He's worthless. It's not the real Jesus. Guys, Jesus doesn't come to us on our terms. He comes on his terms. and We can either rejoice over his reign or resist his reign. Are you rejoicing or resisting? That's the question that you need to answer for yourself this morning. And it's an important question. And there may even be a specific area of your life where you're resisting Jesus' reign right now. Like maybe for the most part you surrendered your life, but there's kind of this one area of your dating life. You're like, I I don't want you to rule over that part of my life, Jesus. Or maybe it's your finances. Jesus, you can have everything else, but I don't want you to touch that. I want to be king of that part of my life. Let me encourage you and remind you that Jesus is a good king king he does he did not come so that he could make your life miserable it's it's foolish to resist the reign of king jesus in any area of our lives because first of all he can't be resisted anyways every knee will ultimately bow to him and secondly he is for his people he is a better king over every single area of your life than you are i promise you He is so much wiser than you are. He is so much better than you are. He is good. He is for you. He didn't come to take away your joy. That's Satan. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. But we miss that abundant life when we resist his rule And his reign. It's actually in by walking in submission to the rule and reign of God that we find true joy and true freedom. So let me encourage you to do that. You know, the reality is that all the other kings of Israel failed. Even King David, the man after God's own heart. He was a great king, but he failed. And you and I have failed trying to be the kings over our own life. But Jesus is the true King who will never fail. So, after summoning the religious leaders and the scribes in his alarm, Herod asked them where the Christ was to be born. Not so that he could worship him. He had more sinister intentions. So, let's kind of move on to verses 5 and 6 and see what happens next in the story. So, Herod calls the scribes and uh, he asked them where the Christ is to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote, Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there are two truths that these prophecies reveal to us about Jesus. This is the revelation. There's two revelations that are given to us. First, Jesus is the promised king. Uh, So uh, Matthew mentions Bethlehem and Judah several times here, and that's very intentional. he's, He's being very purposeful in that because he's pointing us to the fact that Jesus is in the line of David because the Jewish people knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David, and David was of the tribe of Judah. And they also knew that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so Matthew is making sure that we see and understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. Why is Matthew pointing that out? Because he wants us to know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the promised king that all of Scripture points to. Secondly, it reveals that Jesus is the perfect shepherd, so shepherd was a common metaphor for the leadership of Israel. There's also an allusion here to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, where God tells King David, uh, he says, you will shepherd my people Israel. So the leaders of God's people were supposed to shepherd God's people, but the leaders of God's people had failed to shepherd them well. Throughout Israel's history, they had neglected God's law, They had used their positions of leadership for selfish gain, and they had failed to lead God's people into deliverance from their enemies. Jesus, on the other hand, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the hoped-for shepherd king who leads his people faithfully. Unlike all of the other... Uh, leaders and all of the other kings that had come before uh, that had failed to lead Israel well. You know our our culture is obsessed with superheroes. We have we have con- you know movies constantly coming out, uh, superhero movies. Multiple millions and millions of dollars are made uh, on movies depicting heroes coming to rescue humanity from certain destruction you have got fairy tales that depict the knight in shining armor coming to rescue the damsel in distress. Why are we drawn to stories like that? Have you ever thought about that? Like why we're so drawn to, to storylines with plots that are so familiar? It's because we too are looking for the true shepherd king. Right. We too are looking for a savior. We know that there's something wrong with this world. It's very obvious when we look around us that this world is broken. It's very obvious that we need a rescuer, that we need a savior. We, we can sense this void in our own lives. We can sense that we're not really ultimately in control, even though we try to give ourselves the illusion that we are in control. We know that we're not. We know that we need to be rescued. And so we, we search everywhere that we can. We look, we look to maybe to political figures and, uh, to, to come and to make things better. Or maybe we look to ourselves to make things better. Or maybe we look to money to make things better. But we always seem to come up empty. Right. And Matthew is stressing in every single possible way that your search is over. This is him. Jesus is the true shepherd king who lays down his life for the sheep. For those of you this morning who are here that are still searching for what's missing in your life, let me just encourage you to end your search here. Because I'm telling you that Jesus is the one that you've been looking for. You can find rest in him. For those of you who have already found salvation in Jesus, let me encourage you to rejoice this morning and to reflect upon the salvation that he has brought to you. To reflect upon the fact that you have a good king and a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who loves you. After Herod heard from the religious leaders, in verse 7 it says that he held a secret discussion with the Magi, and then pretended that he also wanted to worship the new king. This is the fabrication. It's clear, though, at this point that Herod is not sincere in his desire to worship Jesus. He's got murder on his mind. Herod lied to the Magi. And in fact, later in chapter 2, Herod's going to become so furious over the fact that the Magi don't come back That he decides to have all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem murdered. But despite Herod's wicked intentions, God led the Magi. Herod lied to the Magi, but God led the Magi. God's purposes can't be thwarted. Psalm 33.10 says that he frustrates the counsel of the nations and the plans of the peoples. So despite the opposition and the hostility of the world towards Jesus and his followers, God is still drawing people like the Magi to himself today. He's still doing that today. And his, and, and his plans can't be thwarted and stopped. And after the Magi leave in verses 10 to 12, the Magi's journey reaches its climax. And really what we see here in verses 10 to 12 is a perfect model for how we ought to respond when we encounter King Jesus this is the exaltation. So the first thing that the Magi do is they rejoice exceedingly. The Magi rejoice exceedingly. Look at verse 10. It says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So think about what's happening here in this scene. These, these guys have been traveling and searching for this newborn king for months probably. They've been on this long journey. They've probably traveled over miles and miles. They've probably traveled through wilderness, and they've been searching for this king, and they've they've found him. They're finally here. They're just elated. They're ecstatic that they finally found him, and so they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Like Matthew's bending over backwards to try as hard. It's like he's trying to describe as best as he can that this is the celebration to end all celebrations. This is the natural reaction this should be the natural reaction when you encounter Jesus. In Luke chapter 2 verse 11 when the when the angel announces the birth of Jesus to the shepherds he says I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But is the birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas really such good news like is it really worth this much celebration? What's What's so good about it? But the birth of Jesus is such joyous news because it's it's stunning and it's unexpected. Jen, uh, my wife, was uh, telling me the other day that her and a couple of the other girls from the church went to the mall and they were sharing the gospel with a, a Muslim man there. And one of the things that they were were talking about was uh, they were talking about how Jesus uh, is is God, the Son of God. He left heaven and he came to earth. And uh, the Muslim man was making the point that we, I believe that God is merciful, uh, but he would never stoop to subjecting himself to becoming a man. And there's no way God would do that. God is too holy. God would never just leave heaven and come to earth and subject himself to that humiliation. And as we were talking about that and I was reflecting on that, you know, I just was, the thought hit me that this man doesn't realize just how seriously he's underestimating the love of God. It's, it's precisely God's willingness to leave his throne in heaven and to become flesh that makes him so glorious. That's actually what accentuates God's glory. Because a love like that is truly indescribable. The fact that, that that God would leave heaven and that He would subject himself to become a man, and that not only that not only would he walk this earth uh, a, as a man but that he would go to the cross and take the punishment that we deserve for our sins, that actually makes god 's love far greater and far more glorious, and it makes God far more worthy of worship god 's not a, a an impersonal God who is far too high and holy to mingle with us, who, who doesn't want us to approach him and doesn't want to talk to us. God is a God who has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He became man so that he could die on the cross in the place of sinners like us. And instead of coming to inflict the wrath upon us that we deserve, he came to rescue us. I mean, just think about the history of Israel. Think about the history of Israel. God called Israel purely by grace when when they were enslaved in Egypt. Israel wasn't looking for him. He just came by his grace and he drew them. He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And over and over and over again, God showed mercy to Israel. Even though Israel continued to turn her back on him again and again. God provided a sacrificial system and a priesthood so that he could dwell in Israel's midst. He delivered them over and over again from their enemies when they rebelled and, uh, and uh, delivered them to their enemies when they rebelled, and then he would rescue them again whenever they called out to him. Over and over, they went through that cycle. It's the same for us. We do the same thing. We've provoked God again and again. We continually fall short of God's glory. But he has chosen a remnant, as dysfunctional as we may be, from every single tribe and tongue and nation. Every single person who believes the gospel believes because they were chosen and drawn by God and gifted with the gift of faith. God chose you and sent his son Jesus to die for you as a substitute. This is, the, this is why the arrival of Jesus is such good news. The king has not left us to suffer the consequences of our sin. He has come to save us and he's accomplished that salvation. He's overcome our sin, and He's overcome the grave by His death and resurrection. And the good news of great joy is that unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And You can share in this joy by placing your faith in Him today. Maybe you haven't really done that. Maybe you've been spending your whole life trying to work your way to God. Maybe you've always thought that God helps those who help themselves. Or perhaps you've always thought that you can never know for sure if God will forgive you of your sins. The joyful good news is that God has come to us and you can know for sure if you're forgiven of your sins. It's a free gift received by faith. You can receive that gift this morning. I would urge you if you've never done that. Or even if you're not sure if you've ever done it. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you used to go to church or uh, you, know, you haven't been to church in a long time, things like that. It, even if you're not sure, this morning you can be sure by placing your faith in Jesus today. And if you're a, a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this morning our response should be one of exceeding joy. We should never stop praising God and rejoicing over all that he has done you may not always feel joyful. We're not going to feel joyful all the time. And sometimes you may still feel like you're under God's condemnation rather than known and loved by him. But regardless of how we may feel sometimes, at Christmas we're celebrating a story of, of objective truth. We're celebrating an event that actually happened. God actually came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he actually died on the cross for your sins. So whether you feel it or not, it's true. Because it actually happened. And so we can look to it and by faith we can cling to that good news. And not one of his sheep will perish. Jesus says in John chapter 10, that not one of his sheep will perish no one will snatch you out of my hand he says and not only did the magi rejoice exceedingly but they gave extravagantly they gave extravagantly just think of this scene you've got foreign dignitaries prostrate on the floor before a baby in in an average home, and they're offering up these these expensive gifts to this family. Joseph was a carpenter. They were just average. They were actually rather poor. They would have been in the lower socioeconomic strata, and they're offering up these expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were gifts that a, a family like Mary and Joseph never would have been able to afford on their own. They were truly extravagant. And the Magi humbled themselves And expressed worship to Jesus by offering the very best of what they had. How could we respond in any other way to Jesus? We ought to follow that example. There's two primary reasons that we're taking up a missions offering this morning. Uh, The first is because Jesus is worthy of our most generous and extravagant gifts. Like we we offer up uh, our gifts to him because he's worthy. We're following the example of the Magi here, and we're giving our best to him. We're giving our personal possessions because Jesus is better and more satisfying than money. He's worth more to us than possessions. But the second reason that we're giving towards missions is because there are still billions of people who have not heard this good news that you've just heard this morning. All around the world. There's people here in the U.S. who've never had somebody explain the gospel to them before. And there's people groups, entire people groups all over the world, thousands of people groups who don't have a single Christian among them, where there's nobody actively laboring to go and to bring the gospel to them. So that's why we're collecting a missions offering so that we can go and that we can send missionaries and we can plant churches amongst people that have not heard yet. This morning, uh, in just a, a few minutes, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to take up an offering. I'm actually going to ask the band to make their way up to the front right now. Um, and we're going to take up a special missions offering. And uh, what's going to happen is that 50% of that missions offering is going to go towards the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. What the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is, is that money goes towards supporting the International Mission Board. Every single dollar goes straight towards putting missionaries on the field in some of the hardest to reach places across the world there are IMB missionaries in every single country, uh, in the world, uh, around the globe. And the, uh, the money that you give this morning is going to go towards helping to keep those missionaries on the field and to send out more so that they can bring the good news and they can plant churches amongst people that haven't heard the gospel yet. The other half of this mission's offering is going to go towards the Iceland project. So the Iceland project is a, an effort, uh, being undertaken right now in Iceland. Uh, we've got a, uh, a church planter that we help support there, uh, and they are laboring to plant churches in Iceland. Now, there, right now, there is only one Baptist church in the entire nation of Iceland, just one. Less than 1% of the population there uh, is Christian, uh, and just another mind-blowing stat, 0% of young people below the age of 25 believe that there's a God. Like, z- there, there's not even a single person under the age of 25, statistically, that even believes that God exists. So it's an extremely secular uh, nation, and there are almost no laborers right now on the field. And so uh, we happen to be privileged to be uh, connected with uh, the brothers and sisters that are part of the Iceland Project. There, There is one uh, church plant right now in Iceland. And then we've got uh, a friend named Logan Douglas, him and his wife Carla moved to Iceland earlier this year, and they're going to be planting the second Baptist church in the entire nation of Iceland. And so uh, part of this offering is going to go towards supporting Logan and Carla and their work there in Iceland. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you guys Uh, I'm going to ask the band to play. And then I just want you to spend one or two minutes uh, just in your seat, spend some time in prayer and spend some time reflecting and ask God how he may want you to respond and to give during this time. Okay, so uh, even if you need to, if you need to to just quietly talk with your spouse real quick, uh, if you're sitting next to your spouse, Then you can do that as well, and and ask how God may be leading you to give. But I want to encourage you to give sacrificially. A hundred percent of of what's going to be gathered here in this missions offering is going to go towards the Iceland project and towards the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um, There are two ways you can give. There's envelopes in your seat that are marked missions offering. Make sure. You put this offering in that envelope so that we know it's specifically designated for the missions offering. You can do cash or check, or you can also give online. If you go to the website and you click the drop-down arrow where it says Giving Sunday, then that will go towards this missions offering. So you can do that as well. There's a giving kiosk in the back where you can just do it on your phone uh, if you'd like as well, okay? So um, as the band plays... Uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna pray real quick, and then I'm I'm gonna ask you to spend some time in prayer there in your seat, and then the ushers will come forward. God, uh, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your Son Jesus. Thank you for giving us the greatest possible gift uh, that you could possibly give. Jesus, you said greater love, there's no greater love than this, than that one should lay his life down for his friends. Jesus, you demonstrated that love to us when you laid your life down on the cross. God, I pray um, that we would respond uh, this morning with a response that's worthy for a king who's been risen from the dead. Um, God, I pray that we would give generously and that you would show us um, how you want each one of us individually to respond to to you this morning. Lord, we pray that every single dollar that's gathered up here, God, that it would be blessed and multiplied. Lord, I pray that people would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior as a result uh, of this uh, money that we're about to give. I pray that missionaries would be sent out and churches would be planted as a result of this offering that we're about to offer up. Lord, I pray that it would be used to glorify your name. And I I pray, Lord, that as we offer these gifts up, I pray that we would do so with a cheerful heart and that you would be pleased, that, God, you would be glorified, that you would be made much of by the way in which we offer up our gifts to you this morning. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.